Uh, there's a vision in the book of Revelation that goes like this. If you'd like to turn there, go ahead and turn there. Revelation uh, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. The, uh, the Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos, and while there he receives this uh, stunning revelation of what is going to take place at the end of the age during the Great Tribulation. And as he receives this revelation, this revelation about the end, he sees this, Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short." And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water uh, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's a stunning vision. I mean, just like about everything else that we see in the book of Revelation, this vision of this dragon coming in to consume the offspring of this woman in labor is both strange and intense and perhaps most of all, incredibly Vivid. I mean, you just don't go away forgetting an image like this. It's going to leave an impression. And like many of the images in the book of Revelation, it's also a bit cryptic. Of course, that's not to say it, it can't be understood. It can be understood. It was written to be understood. But at the same time, there's clearly a kind of symbolism going on here that's going to require some additional information to know how to interpret what's taking place in the vision. This is how the book of Revelation works. It's filled with these images and allusions and symbols that can require a great deal of 
biblical knowledge to know how to interpret. And, and John is assuming his readers are familiar with this information when he writes. Well, if you want to understand the image of this woman in the dragon, then you have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Back to where everything started. Back to the creation and fall of man in Genesis 1-3. through Of course, I'm sure you're, you're quite familiar with the story. In Genesis 1, God creates the earth and He creates it good. God creates man as the pinnacle of His creation. And in Genesis 2, He places the first man, Adam, and his wife Eve in the Garden of Eden to tend to the creation and to rule over it on God's behalf as creatures made in His own image. But then, Genesis 3, a crisis emerges. A serpent approaches the woman. A serpent who is identified here in Revelation 12.9 as the devil. That is, the accuser or the slanderer. That's what the word devil means, accuser or slanderer. Revelation 12.9 also says that this serpent is known by the name Satan, which means adversary. Satan comes to the woman. And true to his name, he accuses. In this instance, he accuses God. When God placed man in the garden, he told Adam that he was free to eat of any tree in the garden, save for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan seizes on that command, and he tells Eve that the only reason why God has placed that restriction on man is because God is trying to hold man back. Essentially, God is afraid of man. He's afraid of what will happen if man eats of the tree, of the power that man will achieve once that happens. And so essentially, to keep man enslaved to God, God has told a lie to try to intimidate the man and prevent him from reaching his full potential. You surely will not die, the serpent tells Eve. God just knows that once you eat of the tree that you'll become like Him. Don't you see, Eve? He's just trying to bully you because He's afraid of you. He doesn't want you gaining your independence and becoming like Him. Then He can't control you anymore. It's all a lie that's meant to keep you enslaved. Again, He accuses God. He slanders God. Now, it's all a lie. That's something else that Revelation 12.9 shares about this serpent. It says that he is, quote, the deceiver of the whole world. He's a liar. And this is just another one of the lies that he uses to deceive the world. But unfortunately, in this case, the woman, the woman believes it. She eats of the tree. She then shares some of it with her husband, Adam, and he also eats. And the consequences are absolutely devastating. God tells the woman that he's going to have that she's going to have trouble conceiving and delivering children. He tells the man that the ground is going to resist him. There's also going to be discord in the relationship between men and women. Essentially, they're going to be experiencing great difficulty fulfilling the mandate that God gave them to fulfill and subdue the earth on his behalf. Death also enters into the world with this sin, just as God promised. Man is prevented from eating of the tree of life. And of course, man is also evicted from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Again, this is all incredibly tragic. What we're seeing here in Genesis 1-3 through is paradise lost. But in the midst of that punishment that God gives to the man and the woman, there's also a promise. In the midst of that punishment, there's this promise, and it helps us fill in what's taking place in Revelation 12. God doesn't just curse the man in Genesis 3. He also curses the serpent. 
saying to him, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Essentially, God tells the serpent, I'm sending someone to destroy you. The word for offspring in this passage is singular. And God is saying to the serpent, I'm sending someone to destroy you. This woman whom you have brought under my curse, she's going to bear children. And one of these children is going to destroy you. You will wound him, but he will kill you. And just like that, we have a promise. A promise not only of punishment, but of redemption. There's a Redeemer coming, and He's going to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to free mankind of the curse that was brought about through Satan's deception. After this point, the book of Genesis becomes an exercise in tracing the line of this coming Redeemer. It would appear that Eve speculates that Seth might be the Redeemer. He's not. Noah's father, Lamech, hopes that he will be the one, even giving him a name that basically means rest. He thinks Noah's going to deliver. He's the Redeemer. He's not either. But there are these genealogies that are given in Genesis, and they trace the line of promise. By, by Genesis 12, the promise comes to Abraham and his descendants. After that, it goes through Isaac over Ishmael, and, and then Jacob and his twelve sons over Esau and his descendants. By the end of the book of Genesis, it is even identified with a particular tribe among the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob tells his son, Judah, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, or perhaps alternately it would seem to be translated, or until he whose right it is comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This last part, this promise that Judah will possess the ruler's staff, until he whose right it is comes, and that the peoples will obey him. That's the promise of the Redeemer. That's the one who's going to break the curse and exercise the kind of dominion over the earth that was originally intended for Adam. Point being, by the time you get to the end of Genesis, God has not only said that a child will come from Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, but He has said that this child will come from the nation of Israel. This Redeemer is going to rule the earth, and Israel, or even more specifically, Judah, will be the seat of His kingdom. What Revelation 12 explains is that Satan rages against this kingdom. The woman with the twelve stars on her head, who's clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, she's Israel. She's in labor as she's preparing to give birth to the child. A comment, it would seem, on Israel's history leading up to the birth of the Messiah. And the dragon is there waiting to devour devour the child. He wants this Redeemer, his conqueror, to be destroyed. And so he makes efforts to devour the child. But the child is caught up to heaven. Clearly a reference to the ascension of Jesus. Jesus is the promised Redeemer. He's the descendant of Judah who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But after He was killed, He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God until the time should come when He shall return to destroy the works of the devil. 
The devil, therefore, can't kill the child. He can't devour the seed. And so he does the next best thing instead by attacking his kingdom. This comes down most clearly in verse 13 where it says that after the dragon is thrown down to the earth, he gives chase to the woman in order to destroy her. Now this is all very much future at this point. Satan has access to heaven for a time. uh, Where John says he accuses the brethren before God, we see this played out in books like Job. Well, in verse 7, Michael casts him out. He's no longer allowed to accuse the brethren. And once that happens, Satan knows that his time is short, and so he starts to rage against the Messiah's kingdom. He attacks the woman in order to destroy her. But that woman is protected. She's carried out into the wilderness by God. The serpent pours water out of his mouth in an effort to kill the woman in a flood. It would appear from Revelation 17.15 that these waters refer to a flood of nations, essentially armies. The serpent tries to send this coalition of nations against Israel to sweep her away. But, verse 16, the earth opens its mouth and swallows these waters up. So the serpent is defeated. He can't fulfill his desires to destroy either the Christ or his kingdom. And so, verse 17, he then goes on to do the next best thing after that. He goes off, verse 17, quote, to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Basically, the picture you have here is this prediction that after Satan is cast out of heaven, after he is able to accuse Israel no more, he lashes out in extreme anger against the nation. He even tries to destroy them entirely. He can't do it, though, because God prevents him. And so his attention then turns to the rest of the world, and he goes after whoever else believes in the Messiah to destroy them. The image that we see here which largely predicts events that are still going to take place in the future. It's representative of a truth that we see repeated throughout the Bible. From Genesis 3 on, there's this anticipation of this conflict that's going to take place between the seed of the serpent, who we would have to identify today as the Antichrist, and the seed of the woman, who is the Christ. Satan knows what's predicted by this promise. It predicts that a son of man will come to destroy him. And so he rages against it by attacking the people from whom this Messiah will come. At first it would seem in an effort to prevent this prophecy's fulfillment, and then later in fury against its fulfillment. Basically, he tries to destroy the promise itself by trying to destroy the people from whom the Messiah will come. And then short of that, he tries to prevent the Messiah's reign through the destruction of his kingdom. Satan and his seed raging against the Messiah and his seed. That's the picture we get of history in the Scripture. This conflict between Satan and his seed and the Messiah and his seed. And at the center of this conflict is the nation of Israel. Israel, of course, is the people from whom the Messiah comes. They are the kingdom over which he will reign. This means that they are at the very center of Satan's destructive rage. When Satan goes out looking to make war on the seed that will crush his head, this is where he begins with the people of Israel. Of course, he can't destroy the child, and so he pursues the woman who gives birth to the child. And then when he can't accomplish that, he goes after anyone else who believes in him. You see this worked out in a number of ways in the Old Testament. There are moments, for instance, when nations conspire to diminish or even wipe out the descendants of Jacob through genocide or war. One thinks of Pharaoh's orders to kill all the male children of Israel. 
or even of Haman's efforts to completely exterminate the Jewish race in the book of Esther. At other times, attempts are made to corrupt the nation spiritually, to destroy Israel from the inside through the use of false prophets. Balaam would be the most obvious example of this. He first tried to prophesy destruction on Israel after a Moabite king hired him to curse Israel. Uh, God prevented him. And so instead, Balaam instructed Balak, the, the king of Moab, to incite Israel against God by offering Moabite women to the Israelites. The Israelites fell to this temptation, even eventually worshiping the Moabites' God in the process. So Balaam corrupted Israel spiritually through sexual immorality, and this led to God to, to strike Israel with a great plague that claimed the lives of some 24,000 Israelites. In other words, in other words, Balaam wrought the physical destruction of Israel from the inside by inciting them to do things that would inflame God's wrath against them. And this seems to be the case with other false prophets throughout the Old Testament. For example, the idolatry introduced by the northern kingdoms of Israel and perpetuated by the false prophets who were entertained and protected by figures like Jezebel, this idolatry would eventually lead to the destruction of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians. The same would happen to the southern kingdom as well, only their destruction would come at the hands of the Babylonians instead. Through either method, through either method, Satan wages war, a, a war, a kind of proxy war against the Messiah and his kingdom through the nations of the earth. This war will ultimately culminate in what John sees in this vision of the end in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist will come, he will come empowered by Satan to rule the earth, and he will unite a coalition of nations to wage war against Israel so severe that Israel is told to flee into the wilderness to escape his wrath. Satan seeks to destroy Israel. And the only thing, the only thing that protects them from total annihilation at the hands of Gentile nations, both in, in past, in the times of the patriarchs and the kings, or, or whether it be in the future, during the Great Tribulation, or whether that be in the form of, of spiritual corruption that incites God's wrath, or genocidal bloodlust, the only thing that protects Israel from being devoured by the dragon is God. We talked about this last week as we looked at the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. Israel is presented as this, as this isolated outpost in a sea of foreign nations who are all ultimately ruled by Satan, who wishes for their destruction. And the only reason why he cannot take them is because God flutters his wings over them like a great eagle. He brings them out of bondage and protects them as he dwells among them. Do you remember that eagle from Deuteronomy 32? It's the same eagle that brings the people out into the wilderness and protects them from the ravenous cravings of the dragon in Revelation 12. It's God. He is the protector of Israel. Our passage for today, for the second week in a row, is Matthew 23, 29-39. And in this passage, Jesus declares that because of Israel's rejection of His message... That protection is being taken away. The latest manifestation of Satan's corrupt influence comes in the form of Israel's religious leaders, who Jesus identifies as a brood of vipers, or more literally, offspring of vipers, sons of snakes, in verse 33. These men, wittingly or not, are agents of Satan, sent to blind 
Israel to the truth of Jesus' message. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, quote, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. That's what these religious leaders have done through their blatant religious deception that Jesus catalogs earlier in this chapter. It's why in John 8, Jesus flat out tells the religious leaders that their father is Satan. They lie and they murder just like their father. Here Jesus tell these, tells these men, to, these men to, to fill up these wicked desires by not only killing Jesus, but by killing those whom He will send and empower so that all the blood of the Old Testament martyrs from Abel all the way to Zechariah might be accounted to them. He says, Matthew 23, 29-36, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the blood, the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Just a devastating proclamation of judgment against the scribes and Pharisees that we see in verses 29 to 36. But then after that judgment, Jesus turns to the people of Israel as a whole. And specifically, He turns to the city of Jerusalem. And He raises this lament over what's about to happen to them, saying in verses 37 to 39, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not... See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here, Jesus puts himself in the place of God. And he recalls how he so often wanted to gather Israel together under his wings like a mother hen protects her children. And they would not have it. They rejected His message time and time again throughout their history. They simply refused to hear the word of the Lord, believe and repent. They continually pushed God away with their sin. This caused God to eventually abandon the first temple shortly before Judah's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. God removed His protective power and this enabled Babylon to come in and conquer Israel and destroy the city of Jerusalem. Well, here Jesus is in the second temple even performing signs and wonders in the temple that prove He's able to deliver the people of Israel, but the nation will not have it. In fact, in in no more than three days' time, the religious leaders will seize Jesus by force, and in a matter of hours, they will have Him executed. Jesus knows this is coming. And He declares, See, your house is left to you desolate. That means abandoned, empty, Jesus isn't going to protect them. They've rejected Him, and shortly after His resurrection, He will ascend to the right hand of God and allow them to experience the consequence of their sin in the form of this divine abandonment. And it will not be pretty. It will not be pretty. Luke tells us that on the way into Jerusalem, just a couple of hours before this, 
or a couple of days, sorry, not hours, a couple of days before this, on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus actually weeps over the city as he describes the destruction that's about to happen at the hands of the Romans when they conquer Jerusalem and destroy the temple in 70 AD. According to Josephus, that destruction will claim the lives of over one million inhabitants and visitors in Jerusalem. And that's only the beginning. The rest of history tells of widespread persecution of Israel in the form of the Crusades, of the Spanish Inquisition, and of the edicts of kings banishing the Jews from their countries. It tells of the Jewish Holocaust in World War II, when the Nazis attempted to exterminate the Jewish people, ultimately even claiming the lives of some six and a half million Jews. That's not the end of it either. It's only going to get worse in the times of the Antichrist. He's going to rage against Israel with an unparalleled fury. In fact, Zechariah 13 may even indicate that he will destroy as much as two-thirds of Israel in his persecution of the Jews. We're talking absolutely breathtaking devastation that's going to come upon Israel for their failure to turn to the Christ. They're going to be left completely exposed and ripe for satanically influenced persecution all the way up until, in the words of Jesus, the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And here Jesus laments that fact. There's even a sense in which you could say that he wishes that things had turned out differently. He would that Israel would have heeded his message and lived, but alas, they would not. And so now he mourns the wrath that is soon to come upon them. And this raises the question, why? Why? You recall that the title of these two messages on this passage is God's Grace and Judgment. We've already seen that the grace is on, that, that, that grace on display last week when Jesus laments the coming destruction of Jerusalem, even as he pronounces this devastating judgment on this generation of Israelites. Clearly, Jesus has not rejected the Jewish people. There's a tenderness here for them. There's a tenderness, even as he announces this verdict that's going to continue until the time of their repentance, when they will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That quotation, by the way, has a fascinating allusion to Psalm 118. And I say it's fascinating because... Not only is that the psalm that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, meaning that Jesus references it twice here in the span of perhaps no more than a few minutes, both here and then back in Matthew 21:42. But that's interesting because uh, this psalm also apparently describes the coming repentance and deliverance of Israel. Like that's the song they're going to sing when the Messiah delivers them. Listen, for instance, to verses 5 to 18 of that psalm. The psalmist says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. And the psalmist then continues, verses 19 to 26. He says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. 
I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Can you see what's happening here? In this psalm, Israel has realized that the stone which the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. And they're rejoicing in it. They're entering in Jerusalem shouting praises to the Messiah. Praises to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the Messiah. And they look back on their idolatry and they realize that it was utter foolishness. They realize that God is their protector. And they remember how God disciplined them, but He did not cut them off. When the nations surrounded them and they cried out for help, God delivered. He empowered His people and He delivered them. This is what Jesus means when He says, you will not see Me again until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He's telling them that He's going to be absent until the day of their repentance. He's going to be absent until the time of their chastisement is over and they repent and cry out to Him for deliverance. Anyways, this psalm is just a fantastic testimony to the faithfulness of God who has not rejected His people but will deliver them on the day of their repentance. It reveals the steadfast love of God. In fact, that's the refrain of the first four verses. Uh, The first four verses of the psalm go, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. That's the kind of love that Jesus is expressing, even, even as He pronounces this judgment. Well, if God loves Israel like that, then why does He let them go through with this judgment? I mean, I think we can understand why He disciplines Israel in this way. It's in response to this incredibly heinous sin that we see transpiring on Passion Week. Israel's rejecting its Savior. It makes sense, therefore, why God will stay His hand in this coming persecution. Israel has rejected His offer of salvation. And that's just the natural consequence of their sin. They're going to be left exposed and ripe for the picking. But why does God let them sin this way? You go back to the promise of the new covenant, and and God says that He will take out Israel's heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He says that in that day, He will cause them to walk in His commandments. And He says that all of Israel will know Him from the least of them to the greatest. God is clearly capable of changing Israel's heart so that they believe. In fact, that's what's going to happen in the time of Israel's repentance. God says in Zechariah 12.10, He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That's Israel weeping over the realization that they killed the Messiah. And they come to this realization after God pours out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, quote, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. The idea is God opens their eyes to see it. So obviously, God is capable of changing Israel's heart so that they can believe. 
So why doesn't he do it now, here, in Matthew 23, or perhaps even before that? Why would Jesus lament the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which they're going to receive as a just response to their rejection of the gospel? Why is he going to lament that destruction when God could just make them avoid all of that by pouring out that spirit of grace and supplication now, right here before they reject him and suffer that wrath? That's the question that I ask myself when I come to, the, come to this passage. And I think there are probably a few different answers to this question, most of which are going to be answered by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9-11. through 11. And while those answers are profound enough that it, it actually causes Paul at the conclusion of that discussion to cry out, Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! Although the, the answers to that question are that profound, I want to focus on a much simpler answer than what Paul discusses there. And that answer is found in what happens here at the end of the week. It's to be found in the cross. And to illustrate this point, I would go back to Genesis once again, to a couple of passages that I think help explain just how it is that God works His grace through judgment. You see, there's this tension in the death of Christ where God allows this evil to take place, a great evil, the greatest evil actually that's ever been performed in order to bring about a particular purpose. This is explained in Acts 2, uh, 2.23, where Peter tells the people of Israel, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of law, the hands of lawless men. So who's responsible for the death of Christ? Did evil men do it? Or did God plan it? And the answer to that question is Yes. All of the above. The religious leaders did it as an expression of their wickedness, and yet they did it according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God is the author of evil. James 1 says that God is not capable of being tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But God can take a hands-off approach where He allows people to perform an evil action in order to bring about some good purpose that He envisions. This is best illustrated in the conclusion of the account of Joseph. Joseph, of course, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And while in slavery, he rose up through the ranks to the degree that he became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, which was the superpower of the earth at that time. And of course, God gave Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And through those interpretations, Joseph was able to set aside grain that not only increased the wealth of Pharaoh, but also provided food for his family in the midst of an incredible famine. After Jacob passes away... Joseph's brothers think he's going to exact vengeance on them for selling him into slavery. But Joseph replies, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He says, I don't have authority to judge you for that. Only God does. And and then he continues and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says, look, I can see that God has a good purpose in this. He lets you perform your evil so that you and many others might be saved from this great famine. This is the Old Testament equivalent of this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. The parallel is pretty uncanny, actually. The religious leaders are, are, were, were most definitely jealous of Jesus, just as Joseph's brothers were. So why did God allow Jesus' brethren, the tribes of Israel, Why do you let them persecute him? Well, the answer is because of the cross and the salvation it would bring. 
They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. This we know is the effect of the cross. It accomplishes salvation. The Bible tells us that the penalty for sin is death. And that's not just a physical death, but an eternal death in hell. God is a righteous God who judges sin, and He is a just God who cannot simply overlook sin. But He is also a gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In short, He is a God that would rather forgive the sinner than punish them. And so because He cannot simply overlook sin, He has devised a plan by which He could punish sin through a substitute, through someone who could stand in the place of sinners and suffer the penalty for their sin on their behalf. That someone is God the Son, Jesus Christ. He came to earth, became a man, lived a perfect life so that He could offer Himself up as a pure and holy substitute for sinners and suffer on their behalf so that, in the words of Romans 3.26, God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how salvation works. There must be a substitute for sin. Someone must pay the penalty. They must endure God's wrath against sin and particularly they must do it through the shedding of blood. They must die for sin. Because that's the penalty that God outlined for sin all the way back in Genesis 2. The penalty for sin is death. Again, Jesus offered Himself as a substitute for sinners on the cross so that they could be forgiven by faith in Him. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He, that is God, He made Him, that is Jesus, He made Him who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus transfers His righteousness to us when we believe. He makes it possible for God to look on us as if we were perfectly holy. Both His life and His death accomplishes this. So do you understand? Jesus had to die. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be offered up as a sacrifice. Without the cross, there is no salvation. However, there is no cross without rejection. You see, Jesus had to be rejected in order for God to save. And this isn't just true of Gentiles. This is true of all people, including Israel. You know, it's interesting. You go back to Revelation 12. Or maybe just flip back there. Back in Revelation 12, it says that this war arises in heaven where Michael and his angels fight against Satan and cast him down to the earth. And, and after this point, Satan knows that the time is short and he pursues the woman who had given birth to the male child. He pursues Israel with this increased aggression. But when he's cast down, there's this loud voice in heaven that says, Now salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. You know what I think is going on here? You know what I think causes Satan to be cast out of heaven? I think it's the mass conversion of Israel that was promised throughout the scripture in passages like Zechariah 12 which which we read earlier. Michael, you will recall, is described in Daniel 10 and Daniel 12 as the angel that's given special charge to protect the people of Israel. So again, this prophecy has to do with the people of Israel. Well, if you notice, Michael casts the devil out of heaven. That's a term that John uses, the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. He also uses the term Satan, adversary. That's how Satan's acting, as an accuser, as an adversary to the people of God. Michael casts that dragon out of heaven. But then there's this voice that says the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, and they, they... That is, the brothers who are accused by the devil, they have conquered him. 
So it's not just Michael that's at work here. His actions coincide with their actions. And the passage said that the brothers have conquered the devil, quote, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It would seem that what happens here is what we saw back in Zechariah 12. There's this mass conversion of Israel. They recognize they've killed the Messiah, and they weep, and they mourn, and they cry out to God for salvation in repentance. And understand when that happens... Satan doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore. I think the picture you're getting here is that Satan contends against the people of Israel telling God they're guilty. You remember what they've done. You remember how they rejected you and killed your Messiah. He accuses as Israel's prosecuting attorney. He's their adversary. But when God then pours out the spirit of grace and supplication on Israel, they repent and believe. And then Satan can't accuse them anymore. Because while guilty, their sins have been paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And so with no case to make against Israel anymore, Satan is cast out. And once that happens, he knows that the time of judgment is near because the only thing staying God's hand in His protection of Israel was Israel's rejection of its Messiah. Now they're realizing that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and they're repentant. That means that the Messiah is about to come back and deliver them. And so Satan immediately goes on this all-out rampage to take out as many Israelites down as he can before the time is up. In fact, this appears to be even when the Antichrist comes and sets himself up as an object of worship in Jerusalem, and, and widespread persecution among the Jews begins. It's all happening. Because Israel's repentance means that Satan can't accuse them anymore. His time is running out. The Messiah is coming. Anyways, this is how Israel overcomes Satan with the blood of the Lamb through their belief in the Messiah. Now, the point I'm trying to get at here is that without Jesus' death, without even His rejection by the religious leaders, that can't happen. If God had poured out a spirit of grace and supplication on Israel before the cross then perhaps they might, not be, they might not be sent into the kind of judgment that we've seen them experience over the past 2,000 years, but at the same time, Satan could still accuse them of sin. He could still prosecute them, say they're guilty, and he'd be absolutely right. And Israel would still be worthy of God's punishment. Perhaps not for future sins, but for the very least, because of past sins. It's just like God's reaction to the tree of life after Adam's sin. Adam sins... And then God says, let's set an angel around the tree of life to protect it. So man cannot take of the tree, eat, and live forever. The penalty for sin is death. If Adam eats the tree and lives forever, the penalty will not be able to be paid. And so in grace, God actually removes what might be considered a blessing for Adam, but he does it in order to give Adam this greater blessing down the road. It's the same way with the cross. Jesus loves His people, and He laments the judgment that they're about to undergo for their sin, but He also understands that it's very necessary if they're going to receive the greater blessing that will come as a result of their sin. This means that this great evil that the religious leaders have in mind, along with the judgment that's going to follow, it really needs to happen if Israel is going to be saved. They have to reject Jesus if God is going to be at once both just and the justifier of those who believe. This is just a, just a fantastic sort of irony, but it's true. Think about this. The way Israel will be saved, strangely enough, 
It's through their rejection of the Messiah. That's why Jesus lets this happen. Think about this. He wants them to fill up all the sin of their fathers in rejecting him. Because in the process of doing that, they're going to set in motion the process that will transfer the punishment of all that sin onto Jesus. In other words, the blood of the martyrs, it isn't just going to fall on this generation who rejects Jesus and his messengers. It's going to fall on Jesus as well at the cross. Guys like Paul are going to fulfill this evil by persecuting the church. But then they're going to repent and believe and their sin will be forgiven because Jesus paid for that sin at the cross. This is how we see God's grace on display in judgment. Yes, God is allowing Israel to perform this deed that will bring about this awful act of judgment, but He's doing it for their salvation. He's using their evil toward Him to accomplish His good towards them. What we're seeing in this passage is not divine abandonment, not ultimately, but divine rescue. So can you see how Jesus can lament here and still allow this judgment to take place? Jesus loves His people, and He he mourns over the consequences that they're about to face, but at the same time, He understands that these consequences are necessary if they're going to be redeemed. The lament in this sense, this this longing for things to have been different, it's, it's really rooted all the way back in the fall. If only man had not sinned, then it wouldn't have to be this way. But alas, he has. And so it must. How regrettable, therefore, these consequences are. And yet also, how necessary. There are at least two lessons about God, therefore, that I think we should take away from this passage. Both come in the form of an illustration God's interaction with Israel here serves as a window into His character. In other words, the same God that responds this way to Israel and its sin also responds to us in our sin, and we can expect that He will respond the same way since it's the same God in both instances. That's helpful. This passage helps us understand the kind of God we're dealing with when we place our faith in Christ, the kind of God that we worship. The first lesson that we learn from this passage, I think, is God's hatred for sin. From Israel's judgment, we learn of God's hatred for sin. This passage should humble you. I mean, you stop and think about it. And Israel is just really, is really just the stand-in for all mankind in this passage. When they reject the prophets and kill Jesus, they're doing the exact same thing that all mankind wants to do but can't. Keep in mind, Jesus says that all the guilt of all the murder of all the prophets are going to come upon this generation that crucifies the Son and persecutes His church. The idea is that the sin of other past generations is being expressed in this moment. These guys are just the stand-in. The same could be said of future generations. When people disobey God's commands, when they reject Christ and His gospel, they're just doing the lesser sin that finds its fullest expression in the greater sin. You could really say that this generation fills up the sinful actions of later generations just as it does from earlier generations so that the sins of all those generations will come upon this generation as well. 
The point is that this generation is bringing sin towards its ultimate goal in the murder of God and they'll fulfill it in the crucifixion of God's Son. But they're just doing those same things that their fathers did and the same things that their sons will do. Sin is a hereditary disease. It goes from Adam down to Seth, down to Noah, to Abraham, to David, and so on. This is why the Pharisees' attempts at external righteousness were so flawed, Jesus explained. The uncleanness was inside of them, not outside of them. It's who they are. So this generation kills the Son. But they're just doing the same thing that any other generation of man would do apart from the restraining grace of God. It's the same thing their fathers did. It's the same thing their children would do. This evil that they do, it's, it's, it's in all of us. You and I are really no different than the scribes and Pharisees, not in our essential nature. So this passage should humble you. Like I said last week, some people have have used passages like this one to support anti-Semitism. They try to use this passage to argue that Israel is a particularly wicked nation who has uniquely rejected God and is especially worthy of His wrath. Not so. Not so. That's not how this works. When you see Jesus predicting the slaughter that is about to happen at the hands of the Romans as a consequence for this generation's sin, when you look back on the atrocities of history that have been committed against Israel as God rebukes the nation by staying His hand and allowing the wicked to pursue them, it shouldn't cause you to go, yeah, go get them, God. No, it should cause you to cry out, Lord, have mercy, because that's what you deserve. It's what the whole world deserves. And this is going to be quite evident during the Great Tribulation, by the way, because as I explained last week, once God is done disciplining Israel for their sin, and they come to repentance, He's going to then turn His attention to on the nations, who through their evil were the rod of His hand, and He's going to give them what they deserve for their wickedness. Remember, the actions of of Joseph's brothers were evil, but God used them to accomplish His purposes. That's how it is with the nations. God doesn't approve of them any more than He approves of Israel. They're just as guilty as proven by their unjust persecution of His people. God just lets it happen for a while to accomplish His purposes for Israel. He lets it happen in love for His people, but He doesn't approve. And so once that time of correction is done, the tables are going to turn. God is going to enter into judgment against the nations, and the great tribulation is going to be the result. We're going to learn about that some in the next few weeks. In just a couple weeks, we're going to start to explore the events of that tribulation. And you'll see, again, it's not going to be pretty. What Israel has endured throughout history is going to pale in comparison to the wrath that we poured out on the whole earth for its sin in that day. So let's not get haughty here. You should see in Jesus' proclamation of woe, a preview of what is about to come upon all peoples for their sin against God. And that should cause you to cry out, Lord, have mercy. If anything, you should be grateful for Israel because whether you realize it or not, there's a sense in which their suffering is your salvation. This appears to be what Paul means when he says in Romans 11.25 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. It would seem that the only thing that delays God's return is Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Once they repent, once they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is coming back and the day of the Lord's judgment will be at hand. So God not only allows Israel to reject the Messiah to accomplish the salvation of the whole world, but he also now delays his mercy to them as well. He allows them to continue 
to reject him, so that through their suffering, grace might extend not just to Israel, but to all the nations. God wants to offer the world peace before he judges it, and so Israel suffers. That should humble you, Christian. Like the scriptures say that part of the reason why God is allowing Israel to endure all this pain throughout their history is for your salvation. They're suffering for their own sin, yes. Don't get me wrong. Their penalty is just. But understand, grace, grace is delayed for your salvation. That better humble you, Christian. It better cause you to long for the day when you can cry out with the saints in heaven with a loud voice. Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. You should long for that day. So that's one implication of this passage. Jesus' declaration of woe and the ensuing lament teach us of God's hatred towards sin and it should humble us and cause us to cry out to God for mercy. And there's good news because the second lesson we learn in this passage is God's grace to the sinner. From Israel's judgment, we learn of God's grace to the sinner. Again, Jesus is angry with Israel for their sin in this passage. This passage is is, is most definitely a proclamation of judgment, and yet he laments at the same time. He understands that what's about to happen is necessary, and yet he would that it was not. So clearly he's not abandoned his love for his people, even as they prepare to crucify him. In fact, the whole reason why he's letting them go through their evil plot is so he can die for their sin. In fact, the whole reason why he's going to let them go through with this is so he can redeem them. And let that sink in for a minute. Jesus loves this people so much that he's about to die for them. He's about to suffer wrath for them even as they nail him to a cross. The judgment that's due to them for this great evil, it's actually all about to fall on him. Again, the blood of all the martyrs, it isn't just going to fall on this generation who rejects Jesus and his messengers. It's going to fall on Jesus at the cross as well when God takes out all the wrath that these men deserve on Jesus. Jesus is going to do this for their salvation. Of course, most aren't going to take Him up on that offer. Many will reject Him. They will all suffer the wrath that they deserve for this sin. But the point is that there are some, there are men like Paul, again, for instance, who will persecute the church and then believe, and Jesus dies for them so that they might live. This is stunning. The suffering that Israel endures, they endure it for their own sin. But the suffering, the suffering that Jesus is about to endure in this gospel, he will endure it for their sin. And the suffering that the believing Israelites will endure, it will only be a part of what they're owed. As great and horrific as it is, it will still only be a portion of what they deserve. Jesus, though, he's going to drink up the full measure of God's wrath, even though for him it is undeserved. What grace, what grace is on display in this judgment? And it's the same grace that God offers to you. Keep in mind the sin that these men perform. You're just as guilty of it as they are. And yet the gospel declares that if you turn to Jesus in faith, then His death covers your sin. The penalty that you are owed will have been placed on Him. And what this means is that if you have not yet repented and placed your faith wholly in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, now is the time to do it. I know a lot of time I just sort of assume everyone here is a Christian. Not today. Not today. 
I understand that it's possible that there are some here who have still not repented and placed their faith in Christ. And if that describes you, then I want you to understand this morning that God has gone through great pains to delay His judgment so that you can hear messages like this one this morning. And He's doing it so that you can hear His warning, repent and be saved. He's doing it so you can escape His wrath. As it stands right now, nothing delays His wrath save for His grace. Jesus has fulfilled it all. So if God wanted to rapture His church in now and set in motion the final acts of judgment, now He could do it. But He presently stays His hand so that you can hear a message like this one and repent. And I must warn you, if you reject so great a salvation after God has gone through such pains to delay His judgment so this message could be delivered to you, how much greater will His wrath be to you when it comes? So I would beg you, I would plead with you, if you don't know Christ, repent. Don't just turn a deaf ear to what I'm saying to you this morning. Don't ignore what I'm trying to say. Listen to the grace that's being offered to you. Observe both the great wrath and the incredible mercy of our God. Heed God's message of salvation. Repent and be saved.